In December of 1823, 24-year-old Mary Anning was hunting on the beach in southern England. She scanned the rocky coast looking for anything out of the ordinary when she noticed something poking out of a cluster of stones. Now, to clarify, Mary wasn't hunting for live prey. She was actually looking for something that died long ago. When she approached the stone cluster, she began scraping at it with the patience and skill of a practiced expert. Each layer of dirt and sediment uncovered something that hadn't seen the light of day in more than 150 million years. And this fossilized creature would rock the general sense of world order to its core. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. Today, I want to talk about dinosaurs. Mary Anning is generally accepted to be the mother of paleontology. So during her lifetime, there was this intense interest in learning what came before us. And so her work contributed in a big way to developing this science of studying what life was like for millions of years before humans ever set foot on Earth. So why is this important? Well, paleontology shows us how life and landscapes and climate have changed over time, and just as crucially, how living things adapted to those changes. And Mary Anning was at the very center of some pivotal discoveries that not only shaped this field, but that shaped the way that we view life on Earth in the past, the present, and for the future. Mary's work is central to why so many of us in childhood and many of us into adulthood have had dinosaur phases. Because let's face it, dinos are cool. But before some of Mary's discoveries, scientists and enthusiasts were pretty insistent that fossils were really just old skeletons of animals that were still alive. But Mary was about to prove them wrong. Mary Anning's life was full of contradictions. She represented a contention between religion and science, poverty and wealth, formal education and self-learning, fashion and practicality, what men had access to and what women didn't, and the past and the present. Mary should have been a wealthy celebrity of her day. Her discoveries actually changed the way life on Earth was analyzed and viewed. Her methods and discoveries influenced the development of paleontology and the theory of evolution. And on top of that, they took the foundations of religious thinking and turned them completely upside down. But instead of spending her life in the lap of professional luxury, she spent the majority of her life wondering how she would pay for her basic living expenses and chasing scientific discoveries that other people would ultimately take credit for. But Mary's life was also full of curiosity, the pursuit of knowledge and discoveries that opened the door to understanding life as we know it today. Now, back at the dig site, shortly after uncovering the skull of this creature, Mary Anning would have assumed that the rest of the skeleton might be hiding beneath the surface, but she also would have known that she'd need help to remove whatever she could, and fast. The tides and the weather in Lyme Regis, which was Mary's hometown, were violent and erratic. And to Mary, it could have felt like just as soon as the tide went out and she started working on excavating this fossil, that the tide was suddenly coming back in again and threatening to cover or carry away what she had just unearthed. And so she enlisted some local villagers to help her dig out this skeleton. They worked into the evening and returned again the next morning. By this time, it would have been apparent that with an unbelievably long neck, this skeleton was something special. 
Now, these local villagers would have been very familiar with Mary's work. She was constantly on the beach in Lyme Regis. Mary's father, Richard, had adopted the fashionable practice of fossil hunting before Mary was born, not as a popular pastime like so many middle-class people, but as a means of survival. So I want to just take a second to talk a bit more about Lyme Regis and why this stretch of English coastline would eventually be called the Jurassic Coast. What it really comes down to is that because, much like the Grand Canyon, this area beautifully represents major stages in the Earth's history, which includes geological processes, landforms, and records of life. Both the sediments and the weather play against each other in just the right way so that storms cause the ocean to beat against the beach and cliff faces to reveal all kinds of fossils that have been trapped there for millions of years. And so many incredible Jurassic era fossils have been discovered there that it was named the Jurassic Coast. And so Mary spent her childhood scouring the beach with her father for fossilized souvenirs that eager amateur fossil hunters would buy. Now, two things came together in the early 1800s that made fossil hunting a viable business for Richard. The first thing was the popularity of middle-class people looking for a getaway from the polluted, industrialized cities for fresh sea air. Popular and star-studded coastal towns like Bath and Brighton were where the upper crust of society flocked to, but Lyme Regis was a less expensive, less populated alternative to those destinations that often took on the overflow of vacationers during the summer months. Now, the second factor that made fossil hunting a reasonable business idea was the geology craze that was sweeping across Britain, Europe, and the United States. This trend captured people's imaginations. The scientific community began ravenously analyzing fossils and were stumped by their implications. Now, at that time, there was such a firm belief in Christian intelligent design that geologists attempted to utilize fossil discoveries to actually support the idea that the Earth was only thousands of years old, that it had been literally created in six days, and that a great flood had once inundated the planet. And stemming from this great flood theory was the idea that Noah was able to save two of each creature that was ever created, which supported the commonly accepted idea that God was so intentional about the beings he created that they would never cease to exist. The idea of extinction, that God would allow any of his carefully designed creatures to stop existing, was completely contrary to the Christian ideology that so influenced scientific thought of the time. And so the scientific community had fitted their conclusions, no matter how far they had to reach to do so, to coincide with the creationist ideology. That is, until Mary discovered her monster on the beach that summer day in 1823. She and the local villagers would have carried the heavy skeleton in large chunks, which were still encased in dirt and stone from the beach to Mary's shop, where her father had once sold fossils and where Mary now continued to do so. The heavy, burdensome work of excavating was completed, but now the painstaking work of restoring the fossil to its original state would begin. Now, funnily enough, the process of restoring fossils really hasn't changed so much over the past two centuries. It's a whole lot of brushing and scraping by hand, and hours and hours spent crouched over a body that's millions of years old. This is a tedious process where the stone is scraped off of the bone to expose the skeleton. But of course, it's a delicate process where scraping away the rock and making sure not to scrape the bone away with it would require a delicate balance of skills. But of course, by the time Mary was restoring this long-necked skeleton in her father's old shop, which we'll call her dino lab, she already had a lot of experience restoring fossils. 
So let's take a second to talk a bit about Mary's childhood paleontology career. And no, that's not a joke. Mary turned fossil hunting into a day job at about 11 years old after her father passed away. She, her mother, and her teenage brother Joseph were in a pretty dire financial position after losing the only income earner in the house. And on top of that, Richard had passed away with an overwhelming amount of debt. Joseph was soon apprenticed to an upholsterer, and Mary began running errands for people in town for a small wage. And they also got some assistance from their church, but they were still living a day-to-day existence. One day, Mary had returned to the beach alone to hunt for fossils like she and her father had done. As the story goes, she found an ammonite, which was a shellfish with a beautiful spiral shell. A tourist walking the beach noticed Mary's discovery and offered to pay her for the fossil. And so began Mary's career as a fossil hunter. And soon after, Mary would make her first big splash in the world of paleontology. So picture this. It's the summer of 1811, and Mary's brother Joseph was fossil hunting on the beach, as per usual. Mary wasn't with him that day, but he was looking around for anything apart from the ordinary rocks that covered the beach. Suddenly, the sun glinted off of something in an exposed rock face. He made his way over and picked away at the surrounding rock and dirt to eventually uncover a gigantic skull. And when I say it was gigantic, I mean that the skull itself was about four feet long. So imagine how big the body would have been. Mary would normally have been with him on the beach, but he was alone that day, so he just got some local men to help him dig out that enormous skull and bring it home to his father's shop. The rest of the monster skeleton was buried under the dirt, and so Mary spent the next year trying to locate the rest of its bones. Finally, a violent storm wore away at the cliff where the skull was found and more bones were exposed. So Mary began painstakingly excavating with a small hammer, uncovering bone after bone, and after months of work, she unearthed almost all of the bones of the 17-foot-long skeleton of a dinosaur that had been hidden for 175 million years. It had flippers like a dolphin, the head of a gigantic crocodile, and the snout of a swordfish with space for at least 200 teeth. I would not want to be caught with this thing in the water. Young Mary Anning had just discovered the first fossil that would make her a world-famous fossil hunter. Let's also remember that she was only 12 years old. And on top of that, it sold for 23 pounds, which was enough to feed this family of three for six months. This beast definitely poked at the general belief that fossils were simply the old skeletons of creatures that still lived on Earth. Its gigantic proportions and mixture of flippers and crocodile snout were definitely puzzling to say the least, but because the skeleton resembled a dolphin or even a crocodile just enough, the most ardent defenders of creationism could lean toward that idea that it was simply an ancient crocodile or an ancient dolphin. But for many, this ichthyosaur, which it would eventually be called, would have them scratching their chins. After the ichthyosaur sold, Mary threw herself into more fossil hunting, but it would be another 12 years before she made her next major discovery. But during this time, Mary developed some interesting and admirable skills and behaviors. First, her practicality began to show through in really specific ways. Now, as a woman living in poverty, Mary simply had to be scrappy to survive. There weren't any readily apparent men who were just going to swoop in and save her, so she had to step in and make things happen for herself. And that meant shedding fashionable but restrictive layers. Women during this period generally wore corsets and big, heavy skirts. 
Mary would probably have worn sturdy boots and several layers to protect herself against the constant wet chill of the beach. She would have often spent hours partially submerged in icy water while she painstakingly excavated her fossils. Sounds like fun, right? But it's generally agreed upon that Mary wouldn't have worn a corset. It would have just made it far too difficult to hunch over her discoveries on the beach and scale rock walls as she often did. It also would have made it really difficult to outrun the tide when she dashed in to check rock formations for newly exposed fossils as the tide went out, and then raced back to safety as the tide came back in, which crashed violently into the place where she had just been standing. She also had to be aware of the dangers of landslips because storms often left the cliffs along the beach very unstable. And Mary was obviously disturbing these rocks while she was chipping away at fossils, which certainly didn't help. So she did have to be ready to move at a second's notice to avoid boulders and piles of dirt barreling down on top of her. Now, the second interesting development in Mary during this period was her constant hunger for learning. As a working-class woman, she wouldn't have had access to much formal education or many books because they were just so expensive. So what she did instead was to create her own kind of working laboratory and library. At some point, Mary started to dissect dead animals she would find on the beach. Rest easy, this wasn't anything twisted. She was just eager to understand their anatomy, which in turn helped her to understand the fossils she was finding. In the absence of a formal education in biology, this actually allowed Mary not only to figure out, but to become an expert on animal anatomy, and then to transfer this knowledge to make deductions about the skeletons she was discovering. She also went so far as to analyze coprolites, which were really just dino feces, in order to find out what these animals ate. To do this, she actually put this prehistoric dino doo-doo through what I can only imagine was a disgusting process to soften them and then dissect them and to find out what exactly they contained to see what these dinosaurs ate. And because no one was going to teach her about science and geology, Mary began collecting whatever resources she could get her hands on. She often read the same material over and over again and would spend hours transcribing borrowed articles into her journals so that she could read them again and again. And she would also copy the illustrations. She was actually a really good artist. And in one case, she copied eight full pages of illustrations of marine reptiles. And apparently it was almost impossible to distinguish between Mary's drawings and the originals. Now, back in the dino lab, Mary was finding that the oddest thing about this new fossil she had found was its incredibly long neck. The skeleton was big to start with. It was nine feet long and six feet wide. It had a turtle-like head, it had paddle-like legs, and that impossibly long neck had 35 vertebrae. This wasn't the first time that Mary had seen a fossil with pieces of these characteristics, but it was the first time she'd discovered a complete skeleton. As Mary worked away, chipping at this plesiosaur, as it would later be named, she would also have been thinking about what exactly this creature was, and how it lived, how it moved, and what it ate. And Mary not only had an incredible eye for scouring the beaches, and a strong stomach for dissecting animals, and skilled hands at restoring fossils, but she also had a great ability to deduce what the animals had been like when they were alive. It turns out that the plesiosaur was near the top of the aquatic food chain. Overall, they were massive animals, and they could grow up to 43 feet long. Their triangular heads rested on those impossibly long necks that spanned half the length of their bodies. They moved really swiftly through the water using all four flippers to propel them, and their stiff necks made them even more efficient swimmers as they hunted for clams, fish, and squid. By this time, Mary was corresponding with the top geologists in the world, and they came to her for advice and insight into the questions raised by her discoveries. 
News spread quickly about this strange, long-necked creature that Mary had found, and it eventually sold for 110 pounds, which was the highest price that had ever been paid for a single fossil. Mic drop, Mary. Mic drop. Even more than Mary's previous discovery of the gigantic dolphin-slash-crocodile-like ichthyosaur, this long-necked skeleton raised even more questions about what would eventually become the theory of evolution. Because even though the ichthyosaur was the first known extinct animal, it was still similar enough to dolphins or crocodiles or maybe even tuna for skeptics to dismiss it as an example of evolutionary theory. But there was no known animal on Earth like this long-necked plesiosaur, so it couldn't be so easily dismissed by skeptics. Even though this was only Mary's second major discovery, this would be the one that caused the biggest stir in many respects. And it was this plesiosaur that cemented Mary's reputation as an expert fossil hunter. In the future, Mary would make three more major discoveries. In 1828, she discovered the earliest type of pterodactyl, which is awesome. The entire fossil was less than four feet long, but it was the first pterosaur that had been discovered outside of Germany. And this particular pterosaur captured the public's imagination and fed its obsession with fossils. And in 1829, she discovered a creature that was about 18 inches long and had a snout, but it was hard to tell whether it was a fish or some kind of bird. Scientists debated over whether the fossil was a reptile or a bird. Now, Mary was confident that it was a fish, much like a prehistoric stingray. And in the end, the scientists came around and concluded that it was a fish and that it had a body like an otter and a tail like a beaver. Another mic drop, Mary. And she struck again in 1830 with the discovery of yet another species of plesiosaur. This one had a large skull and a neck that was three times as long as its head. Keep in mind that Mary was influencing scientists across the globe, but up to the time that she discovered her first long-necked plesiosaur, Mary had never stepped foot in a museum. Amateur geologists and formal scientists both contacted Mary for her expertise, and some would even go to Lyme Regis to hunt fossils with her. Now, the unfortunate part of this is that many big-name scientists would go to Mary, shadow her while she worked, collect her knowledge, and then leave without compensating her for her time or expertise. So she had the prestige of a world-renowned expert without the benefit of actually being compensated for her hard-won knowledge and work. Another extension of this pattern was that she would sell her fossils to scientists, museums, and private collectors who would then turn around and sell them again for an exponentially higher price. Unfortunately, she was being constantly shortchanged by a system that was not in her favor. She was working class and didn't have access to the formal education she fought so hard to get on her own. And on top of that, because she was a woman, she was not allowed to even sit in on a lecture at the Geological Society that analyzed her discoveries and sought after her expertise. Now, one expert who was inspired by Mary's findings was Charles Darwin, and in fact, her discoveries laid the groundwork for his theory of evolution. Darwin looked to Mary's fossils as evidence that life in the past was very different than life in the present. Now, by the end of Mary's life, she had received some recognition from the geological community, though it was far less than she deserved. The fossils she discovered were on display in museums and private collections across the Western world. Today, some of Mary's fossils have tragically been lost, but her long-necked plesiosaur sits center stage in the Fossil Way Gallery at London's Natural History Museum. Surrounded by smaller specimens, Mary's plesiosaur spreads out majestically, and just below the skull is a portrait of Mary, hammer in hand. The mother of paleontology, 
finally recognized for discovering a monster that changed the world. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. The Fossil Hunter by Shelley Emling is a nonfiction account of Mary Anning's life. Emling goes to great lengths to give economic, social, political, and scientific context to the time that Mary Anning lived in, and as a result, more and more weight is given to her discoveries and work. Remarkable Creatures is a historical fiction novel told through the perspective of Elizabeth Philpot, who was actually a friend of Mary's in real life, and the two shared a lifelong passion for fossils. In a recent episode, I spoke with Millennial Emma about the 2020 film called Ammonite, starring Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan. This movie is loosely based on Mary Anning's life and work, though there is no evidence that the main romantic relationship in the film ever took place. But the depiction of Mary and the way that she went about her work really illuminates just how difficult and brutally cold and wet the conditions were that she worked under when she hunted for fossils, and it also showed the tedious labor she went through to restore them. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.